Well, today we carry on with our journey through Luke's Gospel. Two weeks ago, obviously last week if you were with us, we had Philip Amos. Um, and just for those who, uh, uh, who would like to know, I have already been in contact with his office and we have a, a provisional date booked in. But once it's confirmed, then I shall let you know. But the week before that, Neil uh, took us, uh, explained to us about this incredible story where Jesus again healed a boy of a spirit that was oppressing him and causing him all sorts of problems. An example again of Jesus showing his authority and his power, but also his love and his compassion for people. And then directly after this, whilst he was still amongst the crowds, he turned to his disciples and with an element of urgency in his voice, he says to them or explains to them what must soon come to pass, which is that he will be handed into the hands of men. This isn't the first time Jesus has said this to his disciples. If you remember a few weeks ago, back in Luke 9, Jesus said these words, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. What's interesting is there is this turning happening in the story so far as we've explored Luke. There's this shift happening. Jesus, the focus of Jesus's mission hasn't changed, but it's or the mission Jesus has come on hasn't changed, but his focus is starting to change. It is changing to, to, to focus upon Jerusalem and the cross which awaits him there. But today we pause on an event where Jesus has to intervene on a, in, in an argument amongst the disciples, an argument where they, between themselves, were arguing who amongst them was the greatest. So if you have your Bibles with you, I won't ask who's got their Bibles today, but if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Luke 9, uh, starting from verse 46. I will be... Um, those who have been here long enough now, you know that I like a good questionnaire. Um, so I'm going to be sending one out asking what Bibles you use. So I'm really interested to see in the church what translations we use here. So uh, that'll, be, uh, that'll be interesting insight for me there. Wonderful. So Luke 9, starting from verse 46. So an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me 
receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. And John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. Uh, stop him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, your word is so precious to us. We thank you, Lord, for the truth is in your word and of your word. And this morning, Lord, we come before you and we ask that you open our hearts, that you open our ears to what it is that you are saying to us. And then help us, Lord, to apply that truth into our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, greatness, greatness is a, is a funny concept, isn't it? We use the word in many different situations and scenarios within our life. As an example, we use the word to reference our emotion to something that we have maybe partook in or something that we are grateful for. We do it with food, don't we? And what was interesting is when I was thinking about this, this question, um, I was reminded of a friend of ours back in Gravesend. Uh, Pat, her name is, amazing, amazing lady. Uh, her Pat and Kwamina, uh, from Ghana, they are were incredible friends to ours. But she made the most amazing jollof rice. Has anyone had jollof rice here before? Oh. Jollof rice, spicy rice, oh, it's just incredible. And I would say it was great. I mean, I would class it as being great food. Okay, so it's something that we, we, can, uh, we can reference greatness within our food. Who has been to see the new Top Gun, maybe, at the cinema? Put your hands up. Wasn't that a great film? Yes, absolutely it was. Sorry for you, uh, those, those people who don't like films, but it was a good film. Who went to the barbecue last week? Hands up. Wasn't that a great afternoon? It was an absolutely great afternoon. It's a shame we only do it once a year. But it was a great, great, great time of fellowship that we have, we had. So we use it in reference to things that we have partook in, or things we are grateful for. But we also use it, we use this word great in reference to size and mass and time. So last week at the barbecue, there were a great many people, wasn't there? Amen. I have known my sister-in-law for a great many years. Yeah? So that's in relation to time. Still with me? Awesome. Our country is called great. Does anybody know why our country is called great? On the, on, on the right sort of lines. On the right sort of lines, Wally. 
Now, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. But apparently, oh, go on. That's it. So historically, it's geographical. It's to do because within the, the British Isles, the British Islands, we are the biggest, we are the greatest of them all. And we are, we've all learned something today. If nothing else, we can all talk about that over the dinner table. We use this word great all the time, but a common usage, and probably the most common usage of this word is in reference to the importance of, uh, sorry, in importance, in fame, in power, and in success of a person. As an example, I'm sure we've all heard of Alexander the Great. Well, the reason he was given his title of great was because he was a military genius and a political powerhouse. William Shakespeare is classed as one of the greatest writers of our time. And greatness in relation to individuals is mostly defined and aimed at people's achievements, at people's titles or positions, the skills that they have, what they have accomplished, and sometimes the material possessions that they have. Now, there's nothing wrong with these things, but the question we have to ask is, is this the correct way to define greatness? The organisation World in Sport, on researching who the greatest sports person of all time was, concluded, who do you think it was? Any ideas, Muhammad Ali? I didn't hear that. Um, no, oh, yeah, good answer, but no. Apparently, according to this survey, Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan, the basketball player. Retired, but the basketball player. But they based, they based their decisions, their framework of finding this out upon the trophies that he won, the records that he accomplished, the net worth and career, his career longevity, and the pop culture, his pop culture relevance. That was their framework for him becoming, in their eyes, the greatest sports person that ever lived. But many of today's celebrities advocate this notion of greatness. Again, keeping within the basketball world, take LeBron James. Who's heard of LeBron James? Oh, Bex, you're a, Le you, you are, you're a follower, aren't you? So LeBron James, for example, he has well over 100 million followers on social media. One of those is Bex. <laughs> His influence... When you've got 100 million people, your influence is massive, isn't it? But on most of his social media posts, he ends it with this hashtag, strive for greatness. Strive for greatness. 
in essence, making it popular to define greatness as perceived success. So if you have power, if you have money, and if you have status, then the world easily calls you great. But is this right? Is this truly the definition of human greatness? After leaving the crowds, Jesus and his followers traveled to Capernaum. Along the way, a situation had arisen. And in verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now, the truth is our passage doesn't explain what drove them to have this conversation, what sparked this conversation off. But I do believe that we can deduce a plausible scenario. The disciples had been traveling with Jesus for two and a half years, give or take. They had heard his incredible teaching, teaching that was unmatched by anybody else. And we get glimpses of this back in Mark's gospel when, when uh, Jesus was in the synagogue in Capernaum. People there, they quoted um, that his teaching was just incredible. They'd never heard anything like it. They were astonished at his teaching. For he taught, and I quote this, he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And officers who were sent to arrest Jesus by the Pharisees returned to the chief priests and the Pharisees and said to them, and again I quote, no one ever spoke like this man. The disciples had seen Jesus heal the sick. They had seen him cast out demons. They had seen him miraculously feed 5,000 people and walk on water. I mean, they were privileged to walk and talk with him and interact with him on a daily basis. And they were blessed to be called his disciples. It would have been way too easy, way too easy for them to allow their flesh, their egos to get the better of them. They were clearly a special bunch of people and they knew it. I mean, take Peter, take James, take John. I mean, they had, they could have had a lot more kudos, couldn't they, to have bragged about them being greater than the other disciples because they had the privilege of going up the mountain and they saw with their own eyes Jesus' transfiguration. So they had bragging rights. But remember, the disciples knew that Jesus was the Messiah. We've already looked at that, haven't we? Because Peter had already declared Jesus to be the Christ of God. But the challenge here is that they hadn't come to, they, to the full revelation that Jesus 
wasn't just the Christ of God. They hadn't fully seen that Jesus was God. God made flesh in the person of Jesus. That was a revelation they were still to have. But they knew he was a Messiah. In the back of their minds, it was possible that they were dreaming of status and honour and power that would follow because to them, Messiah was coming as a political uh, liberator. A political liberator come to set them free from the tyranny of foreign occupiers and re-establish the greatness of Israel. That's what they believed. So because they knew Jesus was Messiah, they may well have been arguing amongst themselves about what hierarchical structure Jesus may well introduce in this new kingdom. They may well have been fighting to and arguing to see, well, where do we fit in? Where do I fit into this new structure? What position or title will I have in this new kingdom? But Jesus, I love that, that Jesus, he's always got a way of turning it around, doesn't he? But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, steps in, as he always does, and he flips their thinking on its head and challenges their thinking. And he says this, verse 47, But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, so Jesus knew the reasoning of their hearts, that gives us an indication, a clue there of his deity, his omniscience, his all-knowing power. So he knew the reason of their hearts. He took a child and put the child by his side and said to the disciples, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. In the first century, a Jewish child was insignificant, classed as a weak member of society. Children under the age of 12 were not taught the Torah, and quite often it was deemed that uh, a waste of time to sit and have conversations with the children. It's a bit of a shocking thing, really, isn't it? So, in essence, by default, children represented one of the least in society and in this instance represents the helpless and the unimportant. By bringing this child to his side, Jesus was teaching the disciples that their hearts and their thinking was wrong. Their egos and desires were driving them to argue about which of them is the greatest in Jesus' kingdom, a position, really, that only one person can truly ever have, and that's Jesus himself. Instead, Jesus was teaching them that true greatness is found through the willingness to take on lowly and unnoticed tasks and care for those who have little status 
in the world. But that doesn't quite fit, does it? Doesn't quite fit maybe where with, with this argument that the disciples were having about which of them was the greatest and the status and power and honour that maybe they would be expecting, a misconception that they had too easily fallen into thinking and a truth that we see around us today in our time, in our world. Throughout time, the definition of greatness is founded upon what a person has achieved, the title and positions they have, what they have accomplished, the material possessions they own, and how people perceive them in the world, and also how they perceive themselves. But greatness, according to Jesus in this passage, is found through humility. I love how the Holy Spirit works. When you said that this morning, I was like, great. Thank you, Lord. Greatness is found through humility, through the humble service to the least in our society. And ultimately, all in need, irrespective of their wealth, their class, their status, or their rank. Bit of a flip, isn't it? What's remarkable is that as soon as Jesus finishes challenging their thinking on this, John, bless him, John, goes on and says in verse 49, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we try to stop him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who is against you is for you. What is, after hearing all that Jesus had said, what had John just done? He placed himself and them on a higher pedestal than this other person who was also doing the work of Jesus. Doesn't that give us hope? It gives us hope and shows us that he's, grace, he's graceful and gracious, right? When we don't quite always get it together straight away. Praise God for that. So if humility is the key to greatness, what does humility mean? One definition is that humility is the quality of having a modest or low view of one's importance. Now, where there may be some truth to this, a better suggestion um, in understanding Christian humility, it, I believe, is put forward by a theologian, J.D. Walt. And he said this, and I quote, Humility isn't about thinking less of oneself. It is about thinking of oneself less. There's a real danger sometimes, particularly with Christians, where we go on our journey of humility that we, we, in essence, degrade who we are. And I think that is a, a disjustice to who we have become in Christ. We have to be careful. I have met, I'm sure you have Christians, I am nothing, I am nothing, I, you know, all I am is nothing, it's all for Christ, it's all for Christ. Where there is an element of truth to that, we have to be careful. We are 
new beings in Christ, new creatures in Christ, new people in Christ. We don't want to belittle ourselves. We are the Holy, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we have to learn this balance between not having egotistical humility, uh, sorry, not being egotistical, but also not having this self-damaging, I am nothing. Does that make sense? All we are is in Christ. And when we came and we surrendered ourselves and we, we laid ourselves at the foot of his cross and we surrendered all and we repented all, we were made new in the power of the Holy Spirit as with Christ, ambassadors for heaven. That is a special thing. That's a wonderful thing. So we have to be really careful that we don't belittle ourselves so much that actually it takes, it, it belittles that glorious truth. But we are called to humility. As we've seen in today's passage, humility in regard to greatness, so humility in regard to greatness goes beyond us. And this is where it's such a beautiful thing. Ultimately, true humility is not about ourselves at all. To the world, humility is all about you. But ultimately, in Scripture, humility is not about us. Humility is all about others. Humility is not putting yourself down but humility is about lifting others up. J.D. Walt, as you was on the screen there, goes on to say, if I am about me, if I'm about me, then I am selfish. But if I'm about you, I am humble. And to him as you can see there, he really thinks it's that simple. Greatness in the Bible wasn't determined by how much money someone had or how much influence or power they claimed to have. Greatness was given to the one who was a humble servant first to God and then to others. And Jesus in this moment was teaching them and calling them to greatness not through the power and the status that they're longing for, but through humble service to the lowest of the low. Because if you serve the lowest of the low, then the only way is up. You'll serve all from the low to the high. And the same calling is to us today. It doesn't change. Jesus calls every Christian in this room, every person who calls upon Jesus as Lord and Saviour, he calls us to greatness, but not because of who we are or what we have, but because of how low we are prepared to go in serving. How low we are willing to go in humble servanthood to any person. 
who God places before us. Quiet room today. But there's a wonderful reward that comes from this by humbly caring not just for those who are of low or little status, but all people out of obedience to Christ, we will be rewarded with a personal, rich fellowship with the Father and the Son. There is no greater thing than that deep relationship with our Heavenly Father. There is no greater thing. There are many Christians, <coughs> excuse me, who have genuinely exemplified what humble service in the name of the in the name of Jesus looks like. And one of those people is Queen Elizabeth. Queen Elizabeth. As a young queen, she was preparing for her coronation and she said these words. The whole of life is a journey to God. In its course are many lesser journeys taken for many different purposes. Sometimes the Bible records special journeys undertaken for special purposes in answer to a call from God. Such will be my journey to Westminster. It will be undertaken in obedience to a call from God. I have not chosen this office for myself. He has appointed me to it, and I go to be consecrated to it by him. My prayer must echo that of the Virgin Mary and that of our Lord himself. Be it unto me according to thy will, not that I will, but that you will. And because he leads, I may follow in complete trust. Queen Elizabeth exemplified throughout her whole life what steadfast faith she had in her Saviour, Jesus. She served this nation and the nations of the Commonwealth faithfully, often at great cost to her and her family, not that we would know it. Yes, she was born into, a, into royalty, and yes, she had privileges that came with that, but let's not underestimate what a lonely and difficult task she undertook. And she did so in the name of Jesus and for the people of this nation. She is one of many who gave us an example of what steadfast faith in Jesus looks like and what humble service in his name looks like. And I would argue that she is one person on this earth that deserves to be called great. But there is one other. Is there not? There is one other who exemplified humble service to God the Father and to the people of this world throughout all generations, and that is Jesus. Jesus, who was 
creator God who came down from heaven and humbled himself as a servant to mankind, a servant to you and to me, and willingly took upon himself all the sins of humanity. He took your sins and he took my sins and he paid for our sins through his death upon that Roman cross. Three days later, he rose from the dead, conquering death and defeating evil, praise God, and provided a way for humanity to return into right relationship with their creator. Jesus is and will always hold the title of the greatest that ever has or will ever be. Jesus sacrificially, his service was the most wonderful gift, wonderful gift that humanity has and will ever receive. And what is even more incredible is it's freely given to anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus as Lord and Saviour by faith alone in him. And then turns from a sinful life receiving newness of life and lives dedicated to his words and to his ways. Is that you today? Is there someone here who is still searching, who hasn't hasn't yet answered that call? Is God pricking your heart? Is he calling you to himself will you answer will you answer are you willing to surrender your life to Jesus who is the greatest period I encourage you as Steve said come and speak to one of us Come and receive some prayer. Let us pray with you. But ultimately, it's your decision just to open your heart and say, Lord, I believe. I believe. And I want to surrender myself to you. Come into my heart. Help me do this. And we will help you on that journey. Because it is a journey. Can I invite the band up, please? Now, there is nothing inherently wrong with titles. There's nothing wrong with power. There is nothing wrong with status. But if it's used for self, if it's used to grow us, then those things are not going to make you great. They're not going to make you great. Trophies, records, net worth, and pop culture relevance won't make you great. I have none of those things, so you know that's me out of the question anyway. A hundred million followers on social media is not going to make you great. Oh, you may think you're great, and others may tell you that you're great because from the world's point of view, striving and succeeding in these areas is what defines greatness. But true greatness 
instituted by the creator of greatness. Jesus tells us that greatness is not about ourselves. Not about ourselves. It's about placing others first. It's about humble, ser- humbly serving others for the glory of God. C.J. Mahaney's uh, book, Humility, True Greatness, gives us a helpful summary. He says this, A sinfully and culturally defined, pursuing greatness looks like this. Individuals motivated by self-interest, self-indulgence, and a false sense of self-sufficiency to pursue selfish ambition for the purpose of self-glorification. Contrast that with the pursuit of true greatness as biblically defined. Serve others for the glory of God. This is the genuine expression of humility. This is true greatness as the Saviour defined it. Amen to that. My challenge to us all as we close is to this week, a bit of homework for you, is to ponder the words of Paul in Philippians 2, first 11 verses. And allow the truth of the words that you read in the power of the Holy Spirit to reveal to you and to me the selfish areas in our lives that we must and need to surrender to God. In order for us to live in a lowly place, living a life of humble service to others, and in doing so, doing it all for the glory of God. I'm just going to close by reading these words and then I'm going to hand over to the band to uh, close us out I'm reading this from the NLT is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ any comfort from his love any fellowship together in the spirit are your hearts tender and compassionate then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and one purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God 
and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to a place of highest honour and gave him the name above all other names, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in the heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.